Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good as a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get accountability and better discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, then uh, pick up the Word Diet, grab a few friends, and start working through it. If this isn't you, then I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat. So why don't you grab them and help them get into the great Word of God. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Leviticus, a greatly underrated book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. The previous two weeks, we were in chapters 17 through 22, working through what's called the Holiness Code in Leviticus. And today we move to our 11th week on Leviticus. We'll do chapters 23 through 25. Uh, the most obvious part of this section is the special days and years that are laid out for Israel to observe. Previous episodes are available on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google, so you can catch up there. And I look forward to working through the text today. Lord, be with us today as we open your scriptures. Thank you for the revelation that you give Israel, which still has value to us today. We pray that we would see what you want from Israel and from us, uh, elements of your character, and ultimately, what does it look like for us to follow Jesus more closely in the days to come? In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 23 through 25 today, and we start things off in chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. So the first thing to note is that God is directing Moses to speak to the Israelites. So the focus here is on the laity. There's a parallel passage in Numbers 28 and 29, which gives greater detail to the priests. But in this passage, it's focused on the common people and their requirements to attend, to understand the sacrifices offered on their behalf, and to engage in Sabbath rest. Jacob Milgram observes that the priest role here is deliberately muffled. Israel, the people, is responsible for maintaining the public expressions of religion. There are two other interesting phrases in verses 1 and 2. The first is appointed festivals or feast, and that it's appointed means that it's scheduled. So here we're speaking of calendar, which points us to sacred time. We've been talking about sacred places and God's sacred name, and sacred has been all over the place, but now we're going to root things in sacred time. The chapter is broken into two halves, the festivals for the spring and the fall. They're spread throughout the year, which is, of course, interesting as well. And then the word feast is interesting. It's a word that is related to the Arab word, hajj, which means pilgrimage, as in going to Mecca, fairly famously in Islam. For Israel, in Canaan, this would often involve travel to Jerusalem. There were three times a year, we're told about this in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 16, that people would travel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacle, all things that we'll talk about later in chapter 23. The other important phrase here is sacred assemblies. And so this is a national gathering. It's a holiday, which means holy day. It's mentioned 11 times in this chapter. Only other times it's mentioned. 
six times in the parallel passage in Numbers 28 and 29, and twice with the early description of Passover in Exodus 12, verse 16. So this is national and communal, where we saw an earlier focus on individual sin and the implications of that for community in chapters 1 through 7. This is focused on a national or communal uh, perspective. Second, it's interesting that these sacred assemblies would at least occasionally be accompanied by reading scripture. Deuteronomy 31 verses 9 through 13 details this, and probably the most famous biblical example of this is Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9. So this is not a lone activity. Uh, Using modern terms, we wouldn't be watching this online. This is a gathering of people in a national gathering. So again, we have holy persons, holy places, holy things, and now we have holy times. We can draw some interesting applications here to moments in our own lives that we have parties, we have purpose behind sacred days or holy days. We have priorities. If we look at uh, celebrating birth and marriage, all of these things should be done with joy. As Alan Hirsch puts it, party is sacrament. I think that's a provocative idea. What are we doing with parties? And we're celebrating life, we're celebrating moments, events, people, things, places, etc. And so we commemorate in those moments the already, and we anticipate the not yet. And in all of this, we practice gratitude. So that's the introduction. Let's move to verse 3. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. So in a nutshell, six days of work, the seventh day is rest. It's a Sabbath to the Lord. This is absolutely crucial to the Old Testament and to Judaism. It's mentioned in every Old Testament genre, and it has broader application as well. It's grounded in creation. It is sacred deeds and sacred space and sacred time. These are universal principles. And it's also egalitarian, which is interesting. It's both for the individual and the community. The Sabbath would impact everyone alike. Now, why? Well, we're not given detail here. The Sabbath is described in many other passages, but we know that it's uh, originated in God resting, so to speak. We're told that when it's first given in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. It also commemorates the deliverance from Egypt to rest in Canaan. And we also know that it's extended to animals and to indentured servants in passages like Exodus 23 verse 12. Now, in contrast to the annual days that will be described in the rest of the chapter, this is weekly. It is a reminder, and it also provides a framing for the rest of the chapter and a theological context. As Gordon Wynnum observes, through sheer familiarity, the weekly Sabbath could come to be taken for granted, but these festivals and sabbatical years constituted major interruptions to daily living. That gets to the tension of holidays in general. In one sense, every day should be special. Every day should be Valentine's Day and Mother's Day and Christmas and Easter, but we don't really work that way, right? So we observe special days, and hopefully that's enough to remind us of what we're supposed to do the rest of the year. It's also interesting that Sabbath and seven is part of all that follows with the festivals that are laid out in chapter 23. There are seven festivals. There are seven days of rest laid out here. Most of them are in the seventh month. The seventh year is the sabbatical year. And then after seven times seven years, then you have the Jubilee. Okay, so let's go to the first spring festival in verses four through eight. 
These are the Lord's appointed feasts, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present an offering made to the Lord by fire. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. So hopefully you caught the words we talked about in the first passage. Uh, They're repeated here, right? The word appointed is in verse 4, and then sacred assembly appears three times in verses 4, 7, and 8. So we've already set the table there. Verse 5 lays out the Passover, which was on the 14th day of the first month. This would have been in, in March or April. Here it's a brief reminder. This was developed thoroughly in Exodus 12, and God sees no need to give another long explanation of it here. This commemorates the deliverance and the exodus that are described in the book of Exodus. In in this festival, the Israelites would eat bitter herbs to symbolize their bondage, bread without yeast, which signifies a discontinuity between the old and the new, and what would be a reminder of God delivering them from Egypt quickly. And then finally, a lamb without broken bones. This is mentioned in Exodus 12, 46, and then later is fulfilled messianically in the ministry of Jesus in John 19, verses 31 through 36. It's going to be celebrated in Numbers 9 and then not again in the wilderness until Joshua leads them into the promised land. Verse 6 then is the feast of unleavened bread on the 15th day to eat bread without yeast for seven days. There's no work on the first or seventh days, and there's an offering each day. The other word that's interesting here is 7 and 8 uses a different term than we saw in verse 3. Verse 3 mentioned not engaging in work. This mentions not engaging in regular laborious work. So apparently there's a restriction in this latter case to business and agriculture, whereas the mere work of verse 3 for the Sabbath is a stricter prohibition. Now these festivals were originally separate, but they're later combined, as is alluded to here. The Passover is merged into the Feast of Unleavened Bread's first day, and we see this in the New Testament in Mark 14, 12. Also interesting that the Passover would be largely for shepherds and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be largely for farmers. So we're going to skim the last two spring festivals. The first is verses 9 through 14, the Festival of First Fruits. Whenever I hear the word first fruits, I'm first reminded of Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Probably the most interesting phrase here is early in verse 10, when you enter the land. And this recognizes that the manna would cease when this festival was first observed in Canaan. This is Joshua 5, 11 and 12 for the reference. Later in verse 10, it says to bring the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. So this is at the beginning of the barley harvest. There are references here in the narratives of Exodus 9's seventh plague, and Ruth 1 and 2 have references to the barley harvest. And then this is followed by a wave offering in verse 11, and burnt grain and drink offerings in verses 12 through 13. Verse 14 prescribes that not any of the harvest could be eaten until this was done. In other words, God comes first, recognizing him and how he's provided for them is a prerequisite to enjoying it. The other classic reference here is to Christ as the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and 23. The last spring festival is verses 15 through 22, the Feasts of Weeks. 
Verse 15 prescribes seven weeks. Verse 16 prescribes 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This takes us into early May. This is the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and sometimes it's called the Feast of Harvest. From traditional Judaism, this was also used to commemorate the giving of the law. This is based on the assumption that Moses came down the mountain 50 days after Passover with the law. And in the New Testament, this becomes Pentecost in Acts 2, verse 1. Verse 17 here, we've got two loaves with yeast for the wave offering. It's the only leavened offering, but note that it's not put on the altar. We're told that earlier in Leviticus. So the leaven is taken from the bread made in the barley harvest, connecting the wheat and barley harvest, and the gratitude that went into the first fruits festival. Verses 18 through 20 lays out other offerings. And verse 20 also mentions that all of this would be food for the priest. So this is a second post-harvest celebration with thanksgiving and gratitude with a really large offering. Verse 21 also mentions no regular work, which we saw back in verses 7 and 8. And then verse 21 also mentions this as a lasting ordinance, which puts an exclamation mark on it. And then finally, verse 22 mentions gleanings again. We had talked about this back in chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, but it does omit grapes since it's the wrong time of the year for that. So you have gratitude in the offerings, but now we have generosity. And those two should go together, right? Gratitude is an attitude, but gleanings and generosity are an action that should follow. It's not just a matter of the heart, but the hands. And maybe this seems like a small thing, but probably not. If the hands are not where they need to be, then is the heart really where we think it is? In Israel's context, would the offerings be effective and acceptable without the subsequent generosity? All right, let's take our first break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 23 through 25 today. In the first segment, we covered the first half of 23, which was an introduction to the festivals and coverage of the spring festivals. That takes us to the second half, where the fall festivals are. I'm going to skim most of this, uh, the, the ones to talk about, verses 23 through 25, the Feast of Trumpets. Today, this is the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. Verse 24, it's the first day of the seventh month, and it's to be a day of rest and again, language we've seen earlier, no regular work, but they are to present a food offering. It's not specified here. In fact, it's not defined until Numbers 26, again, the parallel passage. Matthew Henry has a little bit of fun here that's interesting, I think. He says, those who would know the mind of God in the scripture must compare one part of the scripture with another and put those parts together that have reference to the same thing. So a good general principle about how to read the Bible. Big verse here, I think, is in verse 24 that it's commemorated with trumpet blast. And so there are trumpets that sounded at the beginning of each month, and that serves as a substitute for the calendars that we take for granted today. And perhaps it's a reminder of the trumpets that they'd heard on Mount Sinai when the law was given. And figuratively, Matthew Henry plays with this and says that the trumpet would shake off their spiritual drowsiness to search and try their ways and to amend them. The Day of Atonement was the ninth day after this, and thus they were awakened to prepare for that day by sincere and serious repentance that it might indeed be a Day of Atonement. Speaking of the Day of Atonement, that's next in the passage, verses 26 through 32. Of course, it's described in great detail in chapter 16. This is the only fast among the feast. Verse 27 reminds us that it's on the 10th day of the seventh month. Today it's called Yom Kippur. 
And the description here focuses very clearly on the worshiper. We had talked about this in the introduction. Verses 29 and 32, deny yourself. Verse 32, it's a Sabbath of rest. Verses 28 and 31, do no work. We've grown used to the strength of the prohibition and the judgment for violating the Sabbath. Here, the violation that's underlined is for violating deny yourself. And the punishment for that is to be cut off and I will destroy them in verses 29 and 30. And then finally, verses 33 through 43 lays out the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths or Ingathering. Interesting reference here, Zechariah 14, 16 is a messianic prophecy that invokes this festival. And then John 7, verses 37 through 39, those words are spoken in the context of this feast. Some details here, verses 34 through 36, it's the 15th day of the seventh month. It lasts for seven days. It has a closing assembly on the 8th. Verses 35 and 39 lay out that the first and eighth days are to have no work. Verse 36, there are offerings on all eight days. Verse 38 reminds them that all this is in addition to the Sabbath and the other offerings. In terms of more interesting details, verse 40, take choice fruit and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars, and rejoice. So they were to eat the fruit and use the leaves to build booths that are described in verse 42. The choice fruit would let them celebrate God's protection and guidance and his provision during orchard and vine harvests. The living in booths mentioned in verse 42 is motivated theologically by verse 43 that God had the Israelites live in booths when he brought them out of Egypt. So they are reliving the wilderness wanderings and it would help them physically and spiritually remember where they came from and it would help motivate an eternal perspective. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10 is very helpful here. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. Abraham lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now remember that this follows the Day of Atonement. Matthew Henry says about that, the afflicting of their souls on the Day of Atonement prepared them for the joy of the Feast of Tabernacles. The more we are grieved and humbled for sin, the better qualified we are for the comforts of the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew Henry makes one other observation in tandem with the parallel passage in Numbers 29. He notes there that the number of bulls decreased each day in the offering. And Henry says about that, it intimated to them that the legal dispensation should wax old and vanish away at last. So in a way, it's a prophecy of the coming of the new covenant. So let's wrap this up by talking about the various purposes of the feasts. First, they affirmed the historical nature of their religious experience and allowed contemporaries to participate in these acts of God. I think for us, this is true as well. We read the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. We reflect on church history because it helps us experience vicariously how God has moved in the lives of other people. And then by extension, how that relates to how God works with us. I'm in a church that often describes itself as an independent Christian church, but no Christian church and no Christian is independent. We can't unmoor ourselves, or shouldn't anyway, from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and church history. Being leery of creeds and unconnected to a denomination has its downsides. A second purpose of the feast, it would symbolically dedicate all of their time to God. In this, we think of worship as an event and a lifestyle. Prayer is an event and a lifestyle. We think about Christmas and Easter for us. And yes, we celebrate those as special days, but every day should be Christmas. Every day should be Easter. 
Third, it would help to promote unity of worship and the nation. There were these three pilgrimage festivals in particular where they would appear before the Lord and go to Jerusalem, Passover, the Festival of Weeks, the Festival of Tabernacles. There's a cool promise in Exodus 34, 24. God says, I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory, and no one will covet your land when you go up three times each year to appear before the Lord your God. Fourth, these festivals serve to center the Israelite worship and celebration of God in holiness, justice, and righteousness, where, as in contrast for the pagans, it was often an exercise in moral depravity. So most of these are disproportionately joyous rather than solemn. They are a combination of celebration and confession, compassion and conviction, but the focus is clearly on joy in the Lord. And finally, not surprisingly, all these are types and forms of Jesus. You have the Passover lamb selection on a Sunday. You have the Last Supper of Jesus that follows the Old Testament rituals on Thursday. The Passover lamb, of course, Jesus as well as sacrifice for the nation on Friday at 3 p.m. John 19.36 is the parallel passage in the New Testament. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was Friday at sundown. That was to celebrate the promise of grain and spring from the seeds just planted. That sure sounds like the grave. Then you have the First Fruits Festival, which is the beginning of the barley harvest and the promise of more to come. That sure sounds like the resurrection and the first fruits of 1 Corinthians 15. And then finally, you have the Festival of Weeks, which is Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. Paul uses the Feast of Unleavened Bread to symbolize Christ's holiness and the comparison of yeast and sin in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. I like what Wynnum says about this. Recognition of the Old Testament background to these Christian festivals could perhaps give greater depth to Christian worship. When we celebrate Good Friday, we should think not only of Christ's death on the cross for us, but of the first exodus from Egypt, which anticipated our deliverance from the slavery of sin. At Easter, we recall Christ's resurrection and see in it a pledge of our own resurrection of the last day, just as the first fruits of harvest guarantee a full crop later. At Pentecost, we praise God for the gift of the Spirit and all his spiritual blessings. The Old Testament reminds us to praise God for our material benefits as well. In Old Testament times, these festivals were occasions for rest, a coming together of the people of God, and rejoicing. How much more reason has the church to do these things today? Amen and amen. On Facebook, like Pure Radio, podcasts of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 23 through 25 today. First two segments are covered chapter 23, which are the special days and feast. Now we're going to skip to chapter 25, which is the special years. Matthew Henry observes that as the tabernacle was a holy house, so Canaan was to be a holy land. So how to treat it, and that's a lot of what these special years are to deal with. We're going to start with the Sabbath year, which is chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath of rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your manservant, your maidservant, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you. 
as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land, whatever the land produces may be eaten. So the passage starts as chapter 23 did, the Lord to Moses, to the people. So this is again aimed at the lay people, the common folk to understand what's going on. Later in verse 2, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you. So interesting words here, when, not if, and I'm going to give you. It's a gift, it's in the future, but it's coming. Later in verse 2, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. Verse 5 labels it a year of rest. Then in verses 3 through 5, we have the details. Don't sow or reap grain. Don't harvest or even prune the grapes. That's what rest is defined as. And then verses 6 and 7, whatever happens was anybody's to eat. Exodus 23, 11 also includes the poor. So this is connected to our earlier discussion of gleanings. Now, why do this? Well, for one thing, it would increase dependence on and faith in God's providence and his provision. It also parallels creation with its sevens. It's a reminder of paradise. It would get them to live as nomads, which is, of course, a remembrance of Abraham and their wilderness years. It would give them more time to devote to God and human relationships. It would encourage charity and saving, and it would disrupt the calendar. You're not going to get into a same old, same old sort of approach to life with a calendar that looks like this, that switches it up every seven years. And finally, as Sabbaths are good for us, the Sabbath year would be good for the land. From the available evidence, this was observed regularly by Israel, some combination of spiritual and practical motives. We don't know that, of course, but it was observed. And then one more application here, we see the use of sabbaticals in higher ed, particularly with research institutions and ministry and other areas where people are given an extended break within a period of time. But literally, it's as in academics, it's once every seven years for a year. Okay, let's jump to verses 18 through 22. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years while you plant during the eighth year. You will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. So we have an if-then statement here connected to the obedience and the blessings that result under the Old Covenant rather than the disobedience that leads to trouble under the Old Covenant. Here, if the commands are obeyed, twice there's a reference to living safely in the land. I think that's unexpected but interesting. And then verse 19, not so surprising, it will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill. So verse 20 then has a reasonable rhetorical question, which is anticipated by God within the text. And God's response is, I will send such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. Verse 22 makes it even more specific. You'd still be eating the sixth year's output until the ninth year's harvest. So this is abundant, gracious provision by God who has asked for, commanded the seventh year, but then said, I will more than make up for that. Reminds me of Ephesians 3.20, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work. Or Malachi 3.10 and 11, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this as the Lord Almighty and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Now, of course, such productivity might happen, quote, naturally, but 
the difference here, sort of like we saw in Exodus, the miracle is definitely in the timing of it, right? The timing of the productivity lines up beautifully with God's plans and God's commands for the Sabbath. Last point to make here is that this would also be a memorial to the sixth day, two-day provision of manna when they're in the wilderness. Remember that they were not to gather manna on the seventh day, and God covered them there as he does here. Okay, let's back up to verses 8 through 12 to talk about the year of Jubilee. Count off seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpets sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee. Each one of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow, do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. So we see the arithmetic in this passage, right? You have seven times seven plus one. So you have a second year in a row of Jubilee, the 49th and 50th year. Again, this takes us back to the passage I just read where you need three years of provision to get through the 49th and 50th year. It also parallels the 50 days of celebration that we talked about in chapter 23, verses 15 through 22. There's also the sounding of a trumpet on the Day of Atonement. It begins and ends the Jubilee. In fact, the word for Jubilee comes from the Hebrew word that means ram's horn. I really love the phrasing in verse 10, to proclaim liberty throughout the land. And this is inscripted on our liberty bell, so that's pretty cool. And it connects to the Day of Atonement in verse 9. Matthew Henry observes here, When their peace was made with God, then liberty was proclaimed, for the removal of guilt is necessary to make way for the entrance of all true comfort. And then later in verse 10, we have the essence of the material concerns here, that each of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. In some, it's about redemption of the land and the people. Among other things, in releasing the land and the people, we're recognizing that both belong to God and it should transform our attitudes toward both the land and the people. Now, this was observed to some limited extent in other Near Eastern cultures. Milgram describes this, but he notes that it was practiced only with respect to land when a king assumed the throne and it was limited to his cronies and his whims. So a very pale version of the biblical jubilee. About us, Matthew Henry says, the remission of all debt, release from our bondage, and our return to our inheritance are all owing to the mediation and intercession of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is our jubilee. The focus on the land aspect of redemption continues in verses 13 and then 23 and 24. Verse 13, in this year of Jubilee, everyone is to return to his own property. Verses 23 and 24, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. The punchline again is in verse 13, they must return to their own property. Verse 23 states it differently, the land must not be sold permanently. Verse 24, you must provide for the redemption of the land, right? Returning the land to the original owners, the clan at least, if not the individuals. Verse 23, why? Well, because you're but aliens and my tenants. 
So in the New Testament terms, we talk about the stewardship and that we're managers of the things that God gives us. Here, the, the picture that's given is the tenant and that God is the landlord. We've seen this throughout Leviticus. Hebrews eleven thirteen. all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Right? When we see this, it changes our perspective. Similarly, the tithe is for rent. It's 10% of productivity on the land. It's not 10% of any income generated in the Old Testament. Now, as an economist, I have to point out that when you tax the producer, the consumer bears much, if not most, of that tax. So just because the tax is paid by the landowner doesn't mean that it ends there. But the tithe was originally connected to productivity on the land. We apply the tithe principle to some extent in the New Covenant uh, in the New Testament church. Now, there are many other provisions that we're going to skim with the Jubilee, but let me cover a few details here. In verses 14 through 17, it discusses the Jubilee's impact on the price of land sales, right? If you have to give the land back in two years or five years, that impacts the value of the land as you purchase it before the Jubilee. So verse 15 talks about it's on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee. In other words, how many years of crops are left. In reality, we're talking about a lease, that you're selling a certain number of crops. And verses 14 and 17 follow up on the negative side of this. Don't take advantage of each other. Don't offer too low of a price. Verse 17 makes it theological, fear your God. And we've already seen how the next set of verses, 18 through 22, are driven by a theological rationale as well. Verses 25 through 28 details the redemption of property sold from within poverty. This is to be done by the nearest relative. So this brings to mind the story in Ruth 4. The discussion of the kinsman redeemer in Deuteronomy 25, which is another type of Christ. It's also in the story of Naboth's refusal in 1 Kings 21 and Jeremiah buying a field in chapter 32. All of this is to keep it in the clan. Broadly, this applies to family responsibility. Verse 26, if not, and he prospers and acquires sufficient means to redeem it, then he's to get it back at an appropriate price. So you get bailed out by the kinsman redeemer, but if you acquire enough wealth to reacquire your own land, then you're supposed to do that as well. But verse 28 says, if not, then you return it in the Jubilee. At times and after a time, there's gracious reprovision after poor decisions. Now, verses 29 through 31 talks about home sales in a walled city, and in this case, the seller retained redemption rights for only a year in verse 29, and that's limited given, I think, the potential for renovation, improvement, and economic development. The value of homes is going to be moving around, and so you don't want to tie that down until the Jubilee. It creates some unfortunate incentives. Verse 30 talks about that. Verse 31 talks about that that's, well, that's only within walled cities. If you're in a village without walls, then it's considered open country. And so the incentive concerns there are not as great. Verses 32 through 34 talks about Levite regulations for selling property. I'll leave that to your reading. 35 through 38 talks about loans. And here the provision in verses 36 and 37 is that there's no loans with interest to Israelites. Now, you can loan to foreigners at an interest rate. That's in Deuteronomy 23. And again, we have records of this sort of behavior and some more modest laws in Near Eastern culture, but Hebrew law here is an extension of what would, else would have been seen in that time. Implicitly, this is specifying the poor, so it's not a discouragement of lending in general, and it certainly would encourage giving over lending 
particularly with the poor. Again, the motives, verse 36, fear your God. Verse 38, a reminder that God had delivered them from Egypt and gifted them with Canaan. And of course, that should impact how they handle the poor among them. Verses 39 through 43 get to, if the loan was not sufficient, then you might have to sell yourself into slavery or what is really indentured servanthood. We talked about this back in Exodus 21, and there are regulations for how to treat workers in that scenario. Again, the most interesting thing here is the theological rationale in verse 42, because the Israelites are God's servants. They're not to be man's slaves, and as they had been in Egypt before God had redeemed them. 1 Corinthians 7.23, Paul writes, you were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men, and the same logic holds for Israel. Verses 44 through 46 deals with slaves who are not Israelites. Verses 47 through 55 deal with poor Israelites who sell themselves to rich foreigners. Even in that case, the rich foreigner has responsibilities, and again, the family has a responsibility where possible to redeem the person who is struggling from the foreigner, to redeem their land and their person uh, in terms of the indentured servanthood they had sold themselves into. So let's sum this up. If you get into trouble, you get a loan for seed and you repay it. But if you have crop failure, then you have to sell your land temporarily to get a loan to plant seed again. If again you have crop failure, then you become a tenant farmer. If again you have crop failure, then you become an indentured servant and you use your wages to repay and you had the option to work elsewhere if you wanted. And so the path would go from selling consumer or household items to avoid debt, to going into debt, to selling your land, your house, to becoming a tenant farmer, to becoming an indentured servant. A really reasonable path for someone who is struggling financially. As Wynnum puts it, thus about once in any man's lifetime, the slate is wiped clean. The Jubilee is the ultimate do-over. Now, one purpose of the Jubilee is in Deuteronomy 15, verses 4 and 5, that there should be no poor among you. And practicing this certainly would have helped a lot. In fact, there have been calls for something like a Jubilee with respect to income equality and forced government redistribution, particularly in less developed countries. But we're not under the law anymore. Uh, these are not equivalent mechanisms. Such policies would give glory to the state, not to God. From all available evidence, the Jubilee was probably never observed. Israel had enough trouble doing the Sabbath years. In fact, Second Chronicles 36.21 condemns them and sends them into exile for failing to observe the Sabbaths. Jeremiah 34's judgment on Zedekiah is also really useful to read in this context. Ultimately, it falls to Jesus to be the ultimate jubilee. Luke 4, 16 through 21, quoting Isaiah 61, says he went to Nazareth and read a scroll from Isaiah that said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's a reference to the Jubilee. And as Jesus wraps it up, he says today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And finally, there's an eschatological fulfillment of this as well. The seventh trumpet in Revelation 11:15, the seventh angel sounds it. There were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. We thank the Lord for Jesus, who is our Jubilee. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 23 through 25 today. The first two segments, we covered chapter 23 and the festivals. The third segment, we covered chapter 25 and the special years, the Sabbath years 
and the Jubilee. And now we're going to go to the middle. And if you've been listening to me for a while, you know that Jewish literature often puts the most important things in the middle. And that's the case here as well. Two halves to this chapter. There's some instructions about the lampstands and the bread. And then there's a narrative about blasphemy and its punishment. So the first nine verses has verses one through four, the oil for the lamp, and then verses five through nine, the bread for the table. First thing to note is that it's interesting that there's this selective repeat of these two items and its placement here. It's central to chapters 23 through 25, again, which implies its importance. First, we see the emphasis on Sabbaths, healing, plucking grain, and the light that Jesus brings in the great passage in Matthew 12 as he heals on the Sabbath and as they're plucking grain on the Sabbath. The oil and the bread are both in the holy place, so in terms of the geography, that's important to note. Both passages, 1 through 4 and 5 through 9, have Aaron's duties, the lay people's contribution, and a reference to everlasting ordinances. The lampstand is a daily routine, whereas the bread and the incense are both weekly and on the Sabbath. Now, the perpetual lamps indicate God's power over darkness, his eternality, and many other things. Israel would supply the oil. The incense would be supplied by the elders, given that it was imported items and pricier. But the people would take care of the oil. As for the bread, Milgram observes, whereas the pagans baked bread for the God's table daily, Israel prepared it once weekly, clearly a token offering whose purpose was exposure, not food. So there's some trash talking at the pagans here, some more direct language like this, Psalm 50, verses 12 and 13. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And of course, the answer is no, nor does he eat the bread that we offer. And the bread is a very big deal. It always follows the Ark of the Covenant, which we know is a big deal every time in the narrative, every time it's being described. It's also, along with the Ark, the only one that receives three coverings. Everything else is covered twice. The bread is even on the table when it's transported. So we know the bread and the oil are a big deal, but still, it seems strange to put it here in chapter 24. And reading the commentators, it's interesting. Wenham represents the norm here that he cites the literature finding no good reason for the inclusion of this text, aside from its connection to the narrative later in the chapter, and the broad observation that it's important that the laws are grounded in narrative, time, and place, and the like. But I found Michael Morales very helpful on this, a more recent scholar. He said this functions as the heart of the book's resolution, the theological heart of chapters 23 through 25, the climax to the dramatic movement of the book, a climax that is both festive and jubilant. So one of the fascinating things about Leviticus is that people imagine four different climaxes in it, and for good reason. I mean, I can see where the debate is here. Chapter 9, we saw God show up at the end of the chapter and just blow away the people with his presence at the tabernacle. You have the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. You have the ethical code of chapter 19. And now you have what Morales is claiming as a climax to the heart of these three final key chapters. If Morales is right, then the Holiness Code is not chapters 17 through 25, it's really chapters 17 through 22, and this section we've done today, chapters 23 through 25, is a wrap-up contextualizing everything in sacred time. That has been the key theme here. Then we have the Covenant in chapter 26 and the wrap-up in chapter 27 that we'll talk about in the next episode. And again, remember you have the sabbatical time frames in chapter 23 and 25, which frame this key picture. 
So what is the picture? Well, Morales describes it as the lampstand shining on the bread of the presence as a picture of the Sabbath and, quote, Israel basking in the light of God's blessed presence. And in this, we see another theme that Morales develops, that there's a continuing transformation of the tabernacle into a tent of meeting. Remember that both terms are used for the same structure. Tabernacle is more on the Uh, divine side, tent of meeting is more on God, relating to us side of things, but both terms are used and its function as a tent of meeting is emerging from the tabernacle. Morales also notes the connection to creation. Creation is seven paragraphs of seven days culminating in the seventh day rest. The first, middle, and last days all deal with time. The fourth day creation deals with the heavenly lights which set the table for the festivals. In fact, the term in Genesis is not used all that often, and when it is used in Leviticus, it's only for the lamps of the tabernacle lampstand. And so the text is clearly connecting creation to what's happening in this moment. Morales observes that the catechism is clear. The cosmos was created to be the meeting place between God and humanity, specifically on the appointed days of meeting, which are built upon the Sabbath. Understanding the tabernacle as a mini-cosmos, one would expect a similar purpose for its construction, and such is indeed the case. All of these words are related in the Hebrew, religious community, meet, and the tent of meeting. Morales describes the Sabbath and these meetings as a holiness beachhead in the world, which is to be extended by the people's holiness, as we just saw in chapters 17 through 22, which is steadily to grow in its calling of belonging to God. Assuming Morales is right, the next story becomes a lot easier to understand. Why is it in here? It could just be a random narrative of things unfold, but it's also, if Morales is right, a foil to the ideal. We've seen this in Leviticus. Chapter 10, the sin of Nadab and Abihu followed the glories of chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. We see it with the early church. Acts 5 follows Acts 4. We've just seen the intimacy of God with his people, and now we're about to see what sin does to that and how it pushes things outside the camp and as far away from the most holy place as is possible. So the story is related in verses 10 through 12 as an example of blasphemy. Keep in mind, this is not just saying God's name, but cursing God. And the punishment and judgment are prescribed in verses 13 through 16 and 23 that the violator is to be stoned to death. And we're not sure how often this was practiced, but it was not irrelevant. The story in 1 Kings 21 with Naboth indicates that it was still very much in play. And in fact, it was broadened later. Think about the accusers of both Jesus and Stephen in Matthew 26 and in Acts 6, where they bring in actually a much broader version of blasphemy to murder Jesus and Stephen. Notice also that the punishment and the judgment are delivered by both divine and human court. Certainly both are relevant since God has been violated and attacked by being cursed. Jacob Milgram observes that this would also be massive pollution for the tabernacle if done and then condoned by the people. In a sense, Milgram argues the people are acting in self-defense given the damage the blasphemer has done to the tabernacle and to the people. Quoting Mary Douglas, he says the blasphemer has hurled insults at the name of God. Let him die by stones hurled at him. With the passage on judgment and punishment in verses 13 through 16 and verse 23, again, we're pointing to the middle of the passage. And what's there in verses 17 through 22? The text surprisingly connects it to murder. So the first thing to note here is verses 16 and 22 give us the reference to native and alien again. So we've got the humanity and equality revisited as a side issue. 
But the larger point is in verse 20, the central reference to what's called lex talanus, the eye for an eye that we developed back in Exodus 21. Eye for an eye is literal with murder. We see that in verse 17. It's literal with restitution, verses 18 through 20, 18 and 21. Otherwise, it's a reference to broadly proportionate justice. So why is this here? The blasphemy is described as a murderous attack on God and therefore his people. And so what else could you do? If you want to kill God, then you should die. As Milgram puts it, just as blasphemy is an offense against God, so are injuries that disfigure God's image, the human being. And now we're seeing it's vice versa as well. Both murdering people and wanting to murder God are worthy of death. Lord, in this last chapter, we thank you for your proportionate justice. And then back to the early part of the chapter, we thank you that you want an oil and bread sort of relationship with us. You want to shine your light on us in a deep and abiding relationship. We thank you so much for that. In the name of Jesus. Podcasts of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.